welcome to the Life of Education podcast. So we're here with Keith and Matt. Hello. Uh, Hi there. So Keith obviously wrote and developed our anatomy and physiology course for Allo, and then Matt was his sidekick. So I helped out with all of the filming and obviously the storytelling, which the you chit-chat. do. chit-chat. And the chit-chat, which chit-chat. we love. <laughs> So, guys, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the course and about yourselves. Yeah, so the course originally came from um, when you asked me to create a in-live, in-kind-of-lesson or in-person lecture for anatomy and physiology to teach a group of girls who are studying to be uh, come yoga and pl- no, it was Pilates instructors, wasn't it? Yeah. The girls. So. Um, following a sort of introductory to anatomy, physiology of movement, came up with the basics. And uh, when it came to teaching the girls, it was fine. Going through the physiology of the cell and the systems that they needed to know, the system that they needed to be aware of, it was all it was all pretty good. But it's not my forte. My forte is a bit more of the mechanical, structural, musculoskeletal system. So when it came to actually presenting this uh, on film, uh, I realized we can do a better job if we recruit uh, Mr. Matthew Cottrell. Yeah, so I guess my background's more in the physiology. That's what my education was in anyway, certainly at the postgrad level. Mainly physiology of sport, but you can't really do the sport stuff without having an underpinning of all of the kind of biomechanical and biological and physiological sort of aspects of the body, really. Um, so yeah, so I, I came in and I helped out, uh, basically just kind of tweaking the physiology stuff and then obviously presenting it and adding bits and bobs here and there. Yeah. Adding some beautiful like storytelling Yeah, it did it in a very different way. He did it through billions of years ago when the one yeah. cell, yeah, the full on thing. Cells. So I think when everyone gets a chance to have a look at the course, they'll be able to see, um, how you tell stories about about physiology which is just it's really nice well you lose the meaning if you don't tell it that way i think because yeah. i think the i can't remember what i actually said but i think i made the point on the actual course that when people come to learn physiology and anatomy it's always done in a very a fragmented dry. sort of way well, uh, yeah dry to a certain extent i mean you can you can't really get away from that because it's just you talk about bones and things but if you describe it in a way that we as human beings are just kind of one step along kind of the cellular evolutionary path a lot of things even outside of physiology just like when we're in the gym training make a lot more sense when you see it from that point of view and you see the interconnectedness of it all so that you know your kind of skin is there for a reason your heart is there for a reason or to fulfill a certain purpose um obviously to keep you alive but to keep you functioning as well yeah nice story even there (laughs) Sorry, I can't help it. No, I know. You're just good at it. Um, so, Keith, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the process of creating the course. Uh, did, you, did you find any challenges to that? This was obviously the first time you've ever developed a full anatomy and physiology course. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in university, we had a very clear and concise structure to the way we were taught it. And we were taught it intensely in our first year of uh, a sport rehabilitation uh, degree from St. Mary's in, in Twickenham in London and the aim in our first year was to weed out the people who didn't who weren't really serious about the course so our our lecturers piled it on us and they made it as intense as in-depth as they could and they just asked us to just know it you have to know it and one of my lecturers said something very uh probably influential he said 
anybody can go out and practice and sort of know that this is the bicep and it goes from here to here and this is the hamstring and it goes from here to here. But if you know your like if you know your detailed anatomy in depth to the millimeter, to the to the corner of the tubercle on the part of the exact bone, you're gonna be able to make that little bit more of a difference for the small percentage of people who have tried everything and who just have gone all the way around the block. He said, knowing your anatomy gives you the, f- the foundation. It's like if you're trying to build a sports car and you just know that the parts go here, but if you know what a- each individual cog and millimeter and difference of the, of the mechanics does, then it gives you a much greater understanding of what you're trying to build upon. So um, from that, I really focused on studying it when I was learning. And then when it came to creating the course, I remember I studied it so hard. I remembered the structure. We broke the bone. We broke the the joints down into specific order, and we broke the muscles down into a specific order. And from there, then the easy part was was uh, getting it all on paper. You know, researching here and there. That was fine. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I knew most of it. There was a lot of stuff I needed to get up to date on, like specific specific uh, classifications of joints, which you don't use every day, which I forgot. And then digging into the smaller muscles that aren't such a big player in the kind of in the real world gym environment, uh, I needed to dig out on again. But the real challenge was the time. They just I completely underestimated the time it would take to create it. Yeah, it definitely gives you a new appreciation for when you see like university courses or other courses and people develop them. It's it's a really long, long process. Yeah, and you need to have it. It's it's all well and good just saying this is what it is, but it actually has to be in a way where you can convey the message to the students. So, and that happens before the lecture when you're talking about the learning outcomes. You have to lay out what are you trying to teach people, like what are they going to get from the course. Like the intro is another one of my lectures said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you tell them. So maybe you can tell our students what are people going to expect to learn from this course. Maybe Matt, you can start with the introduction. What will people learn from that? Well, the beginning is basically just, well, the beginning. It's how you sort of came from a single-celled organism. Kind of why, well, I suppose why. Trying to get into the why of the evolutionary sort of path, which is obviously ridiculously complex. And, you know, biologists don't even really know up to this sort of day and age. But it's to kind of frame the whole thing. So you started off from this unicellular organism. You then evolved uh, into more multi-complex sort of organisms and, Again, this is what I was saying at the start. Here's why you have a heart. Here's how, why you have a cardiovascular system. So basically, it just kind of layers the foundation um, for then Keith to go and be like, okay, now here's like the in-depth, detailed sort of subparts. Like here's the uh, here's the breakdown of it all in more detail. So Keith, what do people expect to learn from? So you're basically uh, presenting and developing the next three modules. So it's the upper limb, the lower limb, and the trunk anatomy. Yeah, so after the intro, you get a, in the intro, you get a basic understanding of, like Matt said, the cells and the systems. And then just talking a little bit about what a muscle is, what a bone is, the stages of bone and the effects of kind of bone repair and bone growth. And then that kind of underlays the, that's the foundation on the musculoskeletal system. So the introduction is based around uh, muscle contraction, um, what else to be covering? Muscle contraction, concentric, eccentric, isometric, um, different types of joints. So then you've got a basic understanding in the the language that's going to be used as well, because the anatomical language is is, is in itself a language. You talking about very specific uh, points on a three dimensional object that has multiple layers. 
and then that moves. You need to know the words that the language created needs to be very specific and very particular and very uniform. So talking about anterior, posterior, superior, inferior, um, superficial and deep, you know, all these things created a, a th the 3D model that you're going to have to work with when you go out into your practice. So the introduction is based around that introducing people who may not have heard of the uh, the language to to a basic of what they're going to hear now when, when I go talking about it because it, the thing about this kind of course is the pace has to be quite quick because there's so much to get through. So the introduction is probably one of the more important pieces to to kind of get get a, your grasp on, and then from there it's just into the mechanics and into the this is there and this is there. So we started at the lower limb, we started at the hip and the pelvis. And we moved down through the hip joint, focusing on the actual joint. So we went from the deep out to the superficial. So we, we talked about what bones are there, what bones touch, the head of the femur, the acetabulum of the, of the pelvis, for example. And then the surfaces, how they shape up, how they move, uh, the capsule, the ligaments, where the synovial membrane is. And then that structure follows through all the way. So for each joint, we had the articular surfaces the capsule, synovial membrane, synovial fluid, then the ligaments. And then after that, the next lecture then is the muscles that create the movement at that joint. So firstly, what movements are possible? And then secondly, what muscles control it and how the muscles work? So we went, for example, we'll stay at the hip, into the hip flexion. What are the hip flexors and where do they go? And where do they, where do they uh, attach from and to? And what secondary movement they create? And then we just go through the joint, the muscle at each joint, or rather the movements at each joint, hip flexion, hip extension, internal rotation, external rotation, abduction, adduction. And in there, the muscles repeat themselves because one muscle does more than one job. So it starts to drill home the the, the main muscles that do multiple joints, or the rather do multiple movements. You repeat, repeat, repeat. is kind of the, the, the only way to learn this stuff. So um, from there, moving down through to the knee, again, the surfaces of the knee, moving out through the actual joint structure, the membrane, the ligaments, the capsule, and then the muscles that work around the knee. And we just follow that all the way down to the foot, the ankle. And then the third lecture is the upper limb. Mm -hmm. The same thing from the shoulder all the way down to the fingers. And then the trunk is slightly different. The trunk is geared more towards stability and breathing and respiration. But the small little joints that, that are there, again, all the joints follow the same, the same structure. So I know this seems like a, a bit of a silly question, but why do you think it's important for fitness professionals to really know and understand their anatomy? And maybe, Matt, that's something that you can explain to people. Why do you think it's important that people do this course and that they understand anatomy? Well, it's like, it's like a mechanic needs to know what a car is and what a car's built from. Oh, good analogy. All the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, these are the tools that you're working with. I mean, it's your you're very much like a, a craftsman, like in the same way that like a sculptor sort of builds a statue or like a painter paints. It's uh, You need to know the tools that you're dealing with. You need to know the thing that you're trying to mold because uh, that's how you're going to make the best sort of informed decisions in your sort of program. So if you don't understand what it is that the muscles do, how can you expect to then train them appropriately? And likewise, if somebody comes in with an injury and there's something wrong, if you don't know the ins and outs of the mechanics behind that, then you're not going to be able to diagnose the issue. And it, it goes all the way through into physiology. Like if you don't know why your body loses fat or the conditions that you need to set in order for it to lose fat, then how are you going to program effectively? Do you know? So this is just really understanding the human body because that's the thing that you're trying to mold and trying to use. Yeah, nice response. Um, so what did you guys learn about anatomy that you didn't know before that maybe you can share with everyone? Funnily enough, we had this conversation just 
the other day on our own podcast it was uh, the things that you sort of forget mm. just because I've been doing this sort of PT course so it's like you're going back and you're having to review the very basics again so it was more maybe not so much new stuff but certainly reinforcing old things we're like man I didn't realize that or like completely forgotten about that like you're saying about the, the joints the classifications of the joints and things yeah. mm. um, and then whenever you go into like biology like certainly from my lectures the research kind of changes on a fairly frequent basis and so when you're there trying to review the material again no doubt something's changed since the last time you looked at it so. do you remember a specific fact Kate? uh well, let's see, go on. the i had to re-educate myself on the stretch reflex i just totally forgotten about it um so can you tell everyone what that I is i had a feeling that was about to <laughs> yeah like, oh man still haven't oh. got it still haven't got it Essentially, when the muscle reaches its longest point, there's two. There's two ways to when the muscle reaches its longest uh, position, the Golga tendons get stressed. They send a signal to the brain, and the, the brain reads where the the muscle is, and it activates sort of a protective mechanism. <laughs> but then the stretch reflex actually shuts down the muscle, so that when the muscle is creating so much force brain overrides the nervous system's activation of the fibers and it shuts it off so it doesn't tear the muscle or pull the muscle off the bone which is something that i had forgotten about okay matt do you have anything specific that you remember thinking oh i didn't remember this uh not so but uh, certainly something new actually there was always a belief that you had was it 10 times the amount of bacteria in your body than human cells Mm. whereas going back and reviewing it again apparently that was a little bit of a myth and it's not quite the discrepancy isn't as large it's what did they just say it was an article that came out like nature magazine maybe a few years back where they're saying that if you had a 70 kilo man who was around 20 to 30 years old and was roughly like 170 centimeters tall that you would expect them to have 30 trillion human cells versus 39 trillion bacterial cells um so more or less on a one-to-one ratio that was that but it's still like important to know that but it was yeah like people always sort of bang on about how we're more bacteria than anything else but which is still the case but not quite to the extent that we once thought Mm -hmm. yeah i remember um when i studied anatomy at university reading this book called the cell and i don't know if this is outdated now but i remember uh one of the chapters that i read and it was talking about uh cells being put into a petri dish and they were all like a liver cell a um gallbladder cell a skeletal cell and all of them finding and conglomerating together into tissues just like that and i had that oh my god like there's an intelligence that really exists on a cellular level that is just unbelievable yeah and that's why you shouldn't you know people have this idea of bacteria being this sort of very simple sort of organism which it is but it's a lot more complex than what people suspect and when they get told like oh i have bacteria in my gut and or I have bacteria over my skin they sort of think of it as this just thing that's there rather than something that's inherently part of who they are and like the uh, the amount and the type uh, and the activity of that bacteria can fundamentally sort of alter who you are as a person like right from your mental health all the way down to sort of your physiological health Intense. there you go yeah <laughs> do you have anything else to add to that Keith um no I mean with this kind of stuff again going back to repeating repeating it like just drilling it home in my head also reaffirmed a lot of the the kind of the structural um layout of of the human body i I think uh 
I I did get a lot out of it, even if it's just a recap for me to to know because it's all well and good saying I know my anatomy. Like I don't know, I didn't know it all to recite it offhand, just uh, just like that from top to bottom. So by going through the whole system from the shoulder to the fingers. You re-educate. You, you reignite the parts of your brain that have forgotten all the small parts of the bone. There are little bits in your hand that you don't really speak about with clients. And I think one of the things, sorry, I want, you were touching on, why is it important to know this stuff? And you kind of touched on that if you get an injury, um, you need to know how to troubleshoot and how to investigate and how to go through a process of elimination. But also you need to inspire confidence in your clients and in the people in your class that you really know what you're talking about. Because when you start to speak to people about their own body and their own uh, mechanics, if they realize that you actually really know what you're talking about, you, you have their attention. They want to know. They may not remember. They might walk out of the session. They might forget everything you just told them. But when you have their trust and their confidence, um, they give you a lot more patience and they allow you go through this process of elimination because... Even physios and doctors have to rule things out. If you go to a physio assessment, they take you through a systematic process of elimination that starts with the, with the conversation at the beginning, then it moves into the, the, the testing when they move your arm or they move your leg around. But you need to know what structures are there to test for, to rule out. Um, and that's how you eventually find out through the patterns as to what it is is wrong or what's not working or what's not activated or what's too stiff. Um, and you can't get there if you don't know it all. Mm. Yeah, I think it's also really important, uh, again, touching on the point that you mentioned before, that this is your chosen field. As a fitness professional, you've now embarked on a process where this is your career. So to be really knowledgeable knowledgeable about what you're actually doing for other people is, is really important. It helps to elevate the whole profession as a whole. Um, and I think that's really valuable. Yeah, for sure. Even just from a business perspective, it helps you stand out from everybody else. Like particularly here in Dubai, like the amount of trainers out there who uh, who just don't know their anatomy, they don't know their physiology is crazy. Because they're saying like that's that's the job, like that's what you're using. Yeah, well, this is in essence why we started a yeah. life of education for that reason. Um, so yeah, to try and to try and just give people inf- access to information that they may not have, because it's difficult here. It's difficult for people to to find. Well, people want to learn in this industry. Like people are in it to help people. They're not in it because they they want you know an easy life or they want a lot of money or they just they just want to you know they're in this because they want to help people and they started an education process and they got to a certain point and then some people kind of go off into the world and that's it they do enough to get by or whatever but there's a lot of people who really really want to learn so um that's what we're hoping to do with this is give people a, an in more in-depth understanding of, of, of what we can help them with. And that for me, it's the anatomy and physiology stuff. So maybe uh, can you guys uh, give us a little bit of a, a tip for other people on how they can learn their anatomy? What? So obviously both of you know your anatomy really well. So how can other people really learn their anatomy well? I think it's first off try and find the medium that you learn best from anyway. Some people can sit there and read books to like no end. Other people need sort of audio books and all the rest of it. But I think certainly on things like YouTube now, there are so many like fantastic videos that describe kind of in depth every single process of the body. And uh, I think I saw a TED talk the other day where they had basically created all this digital animation 
of like some really in-depth kind of cellular stuff so it's yeah find find what medium suits you best like don't sit there trying to learn from a textbook if you know that you're going to suck at it and you're not going to retain a thing that'd be my advice yeah. mm. Keith? I think understand firstly that it's a very difficult subject to get a grasp around so don't let it overwhelm you um, firstly start off with knowing your bones and knowing the different bony prominences on each bone to begin with because those bony landmarks are bumpy and curvy and sticky outy for a reason there's something's going to pull on it um so when you know your bones you basically know your blueprint of what's going to go into it what's going to pull on it and when you know the bony prominence and you know what part of the bone it's sticking out, if there's a structure coming around the back or the front, you know what way it's going to move the bone when it contracts. So for me, I, that would be my suggestion. Understand the skeleton and the bony prominence. And then from there, when you're reading the areas that the muscles and the ligaments and the capsule uh, make contact with the bones or where they origi originate or insert, you know exactly where it is. You don't have to look it up. It makes life quicker and easier, but you can build on knowledge and you can layer it on top of itself. Yeah, I have a few things to add to that. I learn anatomy really interactively. I love to watch videos. Um, when I was at university, just being in front of a cadaver was like, it's amazing. Cause it's, That's the grade eight. Like, I should just go and see it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's what you think it looks like in a textbook is so different to what it actually looks like in real life. Also, how uh, it feels as well. Sorry to interrupt you, but like no. the fascia and things like that as well. Like, you suddenly get an appreciation for how elastic and kind of how how sort of tightness can come about when you sort of get dehydrated or whatever else and all these sorts of things as you well know <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean we got i was fortunate to go to king's university and look at cadavers mm. it's a privilege um it's a yeah. little bit scary when you first go in because it's quite a little bit overwhelming but um, but it's it really is an amazing tool uh, yeah. especially studying the human body yeah i mean you get to know you get to know how difficult it is to really identify it because on a picture it's all colorful and it's it's different shades and it's labeled when you look at a cadaver well, sorry to, uh, i mean to put it this way but it looks like just a, a tree log mm. until you really really spend time identifying the different layers i find as well that uh, on cadavers it's it's a very similar color and uh so you have like you were saying before, you look at a textbook and it's got different parts yeah. of the brain and you've got the temporal lobe is green and the occipital lobe is blue, so you can really identify it. But when you're looking at a structure and it's all the same texture and it's all the same color, to identify the different yeah. sections, it's very different. It takes a very refined eye and a lot of, uh, a lot of analysis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you could, if you have the... If you're fortunate, if I was fortunate in 2012 to be able to go to uh, an exhibition by Dr. Gunther van Hagen. He's who, a creepy dude. Yeah, who's the German guy who takes cadavers and plastinates them and creates art pieces of art, essentially. Nice. So he'll, on a, you'll walk around the exhibition basically and you'll see, you might see pictures of it online. Um, you'll see... Uh, a, a muscle, a body with just a muscle uh, with its arm out and it's holding its skin and it's real skin and it's real 
uh, you know, you can see the hairs on it. It was once a living tissue from somebody who donated their body um, for that purpose. But when you, if you know your anatomy and you kind of, you, you want to spend some time, you can go to a knee. You can just stare at a knee for 15 minutes and you start to identify because there is some color differences. You can see positions kind of in an upright position. You can see where the, the, the origins and insertions are of the muscles around the knee and for me, I remember we, we I, got, was, I was fortunate enough that we did it in, in 2012 in London in the O2 Arena. And for, for, the, for the knee in particular, it helped a lot. I actually got to see, okay. Because you're looking at something with no label. So you have to figure out, is that, 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 that? And then you need a global mapping of the area. And then to say, oh, that is that. Okay, great. Mm. I sort of have an idea now of how this works in a real system. Yeah. So if people are just entering the fitness field and obviously they've just done their PT course, now they're doing anatomy and physiology, what would you guys recommend would be the stepping stone for their career progressions? How would they go from there? It's in what? So they've, they've done their PT course now, yeah. learning the anatomy, What and then what do yeah, they do after what, that? What would you recommend? Yeah, so people can understand a little bit of a like a path. So I've done anatomy. What, what's next? What would you recommend? Because well, both of you have been in the industry a long time. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. no well, start training people. Start getting some experience. Like don't, don't go in the deep end and start trying to rehabilitate severely injured people like just start off with your your family members or your friends or whatever else like start building up a portfolio of people that you've started to train um, and then when you feel confident now start charging money for it you know I'd be hesitant to get into that straight away I mean I worked for free for years before I got paid for doing this sort of stuff do you know yeah. and it was in, in Australia we have something that's quite nice it's uh, when you first enter the field and you're very new we have like student rates so you would charge a student yeah. rate uh, you're a student teacher you're not fully qualified that's cool. yet that's um, smart I mean that's that's yeah. that's the way like barbers and hairdressers yeah. do it like you, yeah, when you're in course. barber school you're there learning and you, you charge a cheaper rate. It's all organized on one evening. Um, yeah, and you as a professional, you get paid uh, less as well. So you get paid yeah. a student rate. And that, I think, um, really helps people to understand, okay, now I'm, I'm here, I'm progressing to here. And when, so they do become fully qualified. It's, there's a little bit of a financial incentive for them as well. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, no, no, work, like work for free or charge cheaper rates like, and just you know, offer your time to go and help people who will... Uh, who are smarter than you and who are kind of going to mentor you to some extent. I mean, I think that would be, that's certainly the route I took. Keith, what, what do you th- recommend for people? Um, I think when you leave, when you graduate, you have a very broad knowledge of a lot of the different aspects of training people, weight loss, muscle gain. You probably touch on some pregnancy, pre postnatal. You go into a little bit of nutrition, but, you're really only scratching the surface across a huge array of subjects. So at the beginning, you sort of feel like you know a lot, but I would suggest continue to get yourself on courses. Go on even, like you're never above learning. You're never above bringing something new to your brain. Um, Go on a kettlebell course, go on a TRX course, go on a... Uh, weekend course learning about how to shoulder re- rehab your shoulder because these people who've created these courses are experts and everything has its place so whether you think you as a person don't use TRXs or you don't use kettlebells there's going to be a client who comes to you where a specific TRX exercise or a specific kettlebell exercise is perfect for them um, so you go to a nutrition course you might think you know sort of a lot about nutrition and you know the fundamentals but when you get somebody who's really tried everything 
what else can they do? Can you help them? Because at the end of the day, people's, uh, everyone's different. So everyone's going to present with a slightly different case. And what works for one person isn't going to work for another. So if you can avoid narrow tunneling yourself um, and expose yourself to as many different skill sets, you don't have to always use them. But there's going to be a time where you can pull out that from your repertoire and you can you can change someone's life with a simple changing of the knee position by using a piece of kit that you never knew existed before you went on a on a weekend course yeah i um i also think that the industry changes quite a lot particularly with science so things like nutrition like we all know that like 10 years ago everyone was saying one thing about fat and now everyone's saying something else about sugar so the industry changes a lot so i think it's important for people to continue to learn and develop themselves so that they are keeping up with science and keeping up with the trends of now and what's what's relevant in this day and age for sure no no yeah yeah but even uh I think over a time as well, like trying to develop not a solid sort of philosophy, but like certainly a steady philosophy so that when you do go and learn and you do encounter different bits of research in nutrition, because like nutrition goes back and forth the whole time, that you're not just constantly changing your opinion with every turn of the tide, that you're mm-hmm. sort of developing some sort of rigor from all the learning and from all the experiencing so that things kind of tweak your mindset and tweak your philosophy rather than just constantly getting pulled one way or the other as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we used to speak about it before, myself and Matt. These courses, they all have golden nuggets and they can either teach you something brand new or they can teach you why something's been working that you've been doing very well. Do you know? So as a coach, you might find if I do this with, with this type of people, I get great results. And then suddenly you go on a course and it tells you this is exactly why. And then you know you're on the right track. Keep going. Keep doing the thing. You've got an eye for it. You've got an intuition for it. Um, and yeah, just, just keep adding to your brain. Just keep putting new information in there. Yeah, well, they, like, they can, you know, you go on some courses and they can actually teach you what's wrong. Like you might hear somebody say something. You're like, nah, that's not right. And then through them explaining it, Maybe they do not such a terrible job of it, but it just helps reinforce in your own mind, like, yeah, he's just tried to explain that thing that I know to be not quite correct. And the fact that I'm just here and I'm hearing it again has just reinforced in my own mind, my own position, you know? So it's, you know, you've got to expose yourself to as much as possible, I think. Yeah. Can you give us an example of what you're talking about there? Um, so yeah, so the, the core, the area of core training, for instance, is, is one that you sort of, uh, you hear all the time. Like previous PT courses and things like that, they'd always discuss like the benefits of unstable surface training, for instance, how if you want to improve somebody's lower back pain, they need to activate their transverse abdominus more, do you know? Mm-hmm. And so to do that, you would need to go on to the, like these BOSU bores and you need to sort of do all this uh, unstable surface training. And like, even within the last few years when I've been on courses, they've still said that sort of stuff, which I believe to be incorrect for a variety of reasons, but then hearing them try to explain it, can you go into why? This is okay, well, the, the whole thing is, okay, so first off, why does more activation matter for anything? Do you know? Because you don't live your life like that. So, for instance, uh, the example I always use is, like, if you're there playing rugby or you're there playing football, you're not going to run around constantly contracting your abs and trying to keep your transverse abdominus tight. And so it tends to be, which is the case for pretty much most muscles, particularly uh, in movement, is you want the, you want the force to be there but you want the timing to be there as well. So you need to go through this period of relaxation and then contraction with the right amount at the right time. And lo and behold, you 
get that more from doing things like compound movements or heavy loaded movements or explosive movements. Um, you tend to get those sorts of adaptations by training that way and the unstable surface doesn't really matter all that much. It can certainly help. There are certain environments that it can be useful, such as with uh, what Keith uses with some of his rehab where you're balancing on a rope, for instance. You know, But it's not the be-all and end-all, which a lot of tutors in the past have tried to claim that it would be. You know, and so again, like hearing them talk about that, it's like, uh, no, you've just reinforced in my own mind why that's probably not the correct sort of position. Yeah. So, Keith, do you have uh, any examples like that as well, where you've yeah. used your anatomy knowledge to be like, oh, that's yeah. that's not so true? Very definite one that people come out of the course with, and I came out of my first night course in, in fitness instruction as well with this philosophy of never let your knees go in front of your toes. Um, yeah, I've heard that loads too. Yeah. Which strangely, people are still saying. I've heard a couple yeah. of PTs, even Recently. some of the gyms here. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, wow, really? That's still a thing. Yeah, people say it a lot in yoga too. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I, I've heard it's it in a, yoga. A huge. And there is a time when you shouldn't let your knee go over your toe when you have anterior knee pain. And that exact movement causes pain. So, if so that's, enough, that's enough of a reason to go, okay, we're not going to put your knee over your toe. But to push people through uh, conveyor belts of PT courses with this idea that when you, when you, if in a healthy knee, your knee travels in front of your toe in a lunge or in a squat, you're going to degenerate the back of that knee to the point where you're going to get knee pain. That It doesn't happen that way. It, it's more so that if the knee can travel in front of your toe and you're not getting knee pain, you need to maintain that movement pattern so that that the back of that kneecap never gets painful in that uh, position. So so basically, that's a myth, right? Yeah, it's, I think it's just an overcautious way of making sure that people coming out of courses don't hurt people's knees because knee pain and back pain are the most common injuries like in a general population world. So I can understand, I know, I completely see where it's coming from. It's coming from, look, let's, let's protect these people and let's not have new, court, new trainers going out to the industry and hurting people. But, but I, I think just from from teaching courses myself, I know that sometimes you really need to give people the most conservative estimates because if I say to someone, okay, you can do this, the way that people interpret uh, something can be very different to what's actually being dictated. So sometimes I may say to somebody, oh, like, uh, do this because it's safe. Mm. Um, and I know that in their mind, they're going to take it 30% even more. And that in itself can be a little bit of a challenge when you're teaching people that are very brand new to the industry. So from a course developer point of view, I can sympathize with why sometimes people who develop these courses can be more on the cautious side. Do you, yeah, what do you guys think about that? You do have to err on the side of caution, but, uh, if you, if you have somebody who they need to move, they need to put their joints through new ranges of movement and you're holding them back from an end range that they're actually going to go through when they sit on a chair, when they sit on the toilet, when they go downstairs, the knee is going to travel. We need to get the knee strong in that position. We need to, we need to get them, we need to work whatever joints are available, or rather whatever movements are available at the joints. Um, and I think what, how that can translate into a, into a session is you have somebody who's practicing a lunge for the first time. It's a difficult movement to do wi- with or without a coach standing beside you re- recreating every minute thing you do. So as soon as your knee goes over your toe to be told, no, no, you're doing it wrong. Why? 
or because I say so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fine. Well, I'll try and do it another way. But the, the new person is trying to absorb multiple teaching points. Keep your chest up. Keep your weight in your heel. Keep this. Keep that. Keep your knee behind your toe. Like this person is in this in new brand new environment and they're being kind of almost critiqued on what they can and can't do. Um, so I think a little bit of freedom is always useful as long as it's not causing pain at the beginning. And then, so let the knee travel over the toe. It's not going to break them. If they complain of knee pain at that point, there you go. There's your red flag to stop that exercise and regress. And then instruct them, keep your knee back. Does that change? But um, I think it can just make some sessions a bit difficult with people who are starting out, like as in clients who are starting out. It just makes them feel a little bit more inadequate than they really should be. Yeah, mm, but I mean, that whole issue as well is just a fundamental misunderstanding of physics. I mean, and that would be like another point if, uh, okay, once you've done your PT course, just go and learn some sort of physics, like real basic level lever system physics. Because if you have somebody who's trying to lean back uh, or trying to not get their knees to travel over their toes, it means they have to lean back even further. Now, sure enough, that problem probably also has some sort of lower back pain if we're if their knees are that jacked up and like 99% of the population is maybe because they've been sitting down for too long then they're probably also going to have lower back pain now like it, this goes back to like you know secondary school physics if you have a lever system and you have a like a line of force when the line of force travels down the axis of rotation there's no force happening on the axis so on your joint so that's fine so okay you've you've chucked the uh, your hips further away from your knee so now your knee's safer but you've taken that hip joint way back Way like far away from the line of force, thinking like gravity is going straight through the knee joint at this moment. So now all of that pressure is now getting transferred onto the hips and the lower back, which is what we call like a Romanian deadlift. Like we then position the hips in a way that then the hamstrings and the glutes can take the brunt of that. And that's why you feel it more in the hamstrings and the glutes. But the second you drop those hips, now all of those lumbar vertebrae, they're now the joints. All those little facet joints, they're taking all the force. And so, and then when you do that in like a loaded position, like now you're just okay you've you've saved the knees but now you're going to jack up the lower spine okay that's quite yeah. interesting does that mean yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, that's a horrible that's a no, weird no, one I, to explain yeah. without it's a drawing essentially yeah I, I know what you're trying to say is if the knee can't travel over the toes then the, the hip, pressure is going to go hip elsewhere and the pelvis is going to be very far behind your heels yeah yeah which is which is basically going to mean you're going to fall backwards so mm. what people will tend to do is they'll lean extra far forward with their chest to keep the weight of their upper body back in line with their center of uh, of gravity yeah so your shoulders are literally over your knees to compensate yeah almost horizontal yeah but if you were to do the math on that okay now there's nothing going through your knees or your shoulders but now everything's going through your yeah. lower back and your hip yeah really valid point do you guys have any other myths that you've, you well, you've seen your anatomy really be able to assist with going oh that's not quite quite yeah right. i think t- it's it's kind of along the lines of map with, with the unstable surface um from a rehab perspective, and this is restoring minimal function, not taking people to top end kind of performance output. Uh, you need an element of an unstable surface, but that doesn't necessarily mean you, you need to go to a BOSU or you need to go to a wobble cushion. You can create instability on a hard surface by playing around with an in-depth knowledge of anatomy. Sorry to come back to that, but... Um, a simple lunge with the heel off the floor destabilizes the ankle, creates 
instability at the ankle joint where you might have an, uh, an ankle ligament injury or creates instability at the knee, forcing the knee ligaments to respond with greater activity to feed info to the brain. But you're on a stable surface, mimicking the stable surface that the majority of sports and activities are played on. So racquetball, tennis, they don't bounce around on unstable surfaces. It's a stable floor with an unstable it's a stable base with an unstable movement. So I, I think when you get towards the higher end of your sort of of your of your anatomy knowledge, and you begin to understand that if I actually bring the foot into plantar flexion, I'm changing the shape of the talus in the bottom of the uh distal talo uh fibular joint. So from there I can create instability. But I don't have to stand on a uh, BOSU for that. Yeah. But that's higher. That's uh, I know. I appreciate that's at the greater end of, of the kind of the knowledge spectrum. But it is a really simple thing that people can do. Like if you say to someone, "Okay, well, lift, just lift your heel up." It's a yeah. lot more. Um, yeah, it's it's quite simple. It's but simple, and but, it, but it, people always be told in their thing, you must have your weight evenly dispersed on the floor, which is true. Because if, if you take a brand new client and you ask them to go on their toes, they're going to hate the session. They're not going to enjoy it. And they're not, what they're also going to do, and this is where you have to get the balance correct, and this is kind of touching onto what Matt does. When you destabilize the surface, sorry, when you destabilize the joint, you reduce the amount of maximal power that the muscles can do just by physics. Do you know what I'm, you know where yeah, I'm going yeah, with yeah, this? Yeah, for sure. So if you have somebody squatting on a Swiss ball, because <laughs> of the instability on their, below their feet, they can't take as heavy a weight on their back. So their muscles aren't working to the muscle's full potential. So you're going to reduce the amount of benefit you're going to get from a power output. Can you explain that differently? No, you, the, yeah, you pretty much nailed it there. I mean, it's the same thing as, uh, say, running on a cushioned surface or having too big a sole in your foot. It's like, okay, great, like we've reduced the impact. And this is the same for pretty much like 99% of treadmills out there as well where they have this floating deck that kind of uh, is bouncy, basically, for want of a better word. Is that okay? It's great. The impact's reduced, but you've also reduced the amount of force that you can impart on that surface because the second you push harder, all you're doing is pushing the treadmill further down, say, right? Um, so you can't apply as much force. But then also, uh, you're then going to have a softer surface. So then you're going to create more kind of instability around certain joints, say, like the ankle joint. In which case, if you're running and you're running for like a seriously long time, like, you know, in a mile, you're doing, what, 1,500 steps or something. That's a lot of wiggling and wobbling for the ankle to take. And so then that's going to just pull on the Achilles the whole time, and that's where you get this sort of kind of whiplash of the ankle to a certain extent. And so you need you need stable surfaces, A, to produce force from a performance point of view, but also to produce force from a safety point of view to keep the, the joints that are supposed to be stable, stable, right? Um, I yeah. have an analogy that might help with that. I've just Go remembered I tell people this with the shoulder joint. If you imagine you're trying to shoot a cannon out of a canoe, okay, you put a canoe on the water, you put a cannon on top, and you, 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 pull, you light the fuse. When the cannonball shoots off, the canoe is going to dip down into the water, and the cannonball is going to go only so far. Now you take that cannon and you put it on the riverbank, and now you shoot it. How much further is that same force going to send that cannonball? So that's the kind of difference between training on an unstable surface from a force generation perspective. Yeah. and training on a stable surface. If you're trying to train for power output, if 
you're trying to train for sports, you've got to really identify what the main, main goal of the, of the yeah. training is. I think when you say like power output, that's the operative word there because it is when you're training for other things and your goal is something else, then yeah, it's, it's different. But for power output, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's where you wait, 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 wait. Sorry, explain that more. What? Like, for example, um, something. Say, say you don't want to. Uh, you're not training for power output. You're just engagement. Uh, that's it. And you've got certain muscles that are not uh, engaging or not being activated. Say, if you're thinking about uh, really small muscles in your feet, you're thinking intrinsic muscles of the feet as opposed to extrinsic muscles of the feet. So you want to do something a lot more subtle. Mm, then exactly. Then it's a very different. But I'd, I'd say you're still training the same thing. Then you're still training power output. Mm. Because it's, it goes back to the same thing of uh, what was the point I was making before <laughs> about running on the treadmill? Nah, it's before that. Uh, uh, it's a good time to forget. <laughs> no, no, but so okay, yeah, no, yeah, more or less running on the treadmill. Yeah, so you want mm. certain muscles to fire at the right time, right? The timing—that was it, the core stability sort of stuff. Okay? Yeah. So okay, activation is great, but you want it to fire at the right time. Okay, so even with the subtlety of the foot, say. Although it, 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 the reason why you say it's subtle is because it's like a smaller muscle and you're not necessarily going max force. But like maximum force doesn't necessarily mean maximum power, say. Mm. But it's this balance of velocity and force, right? Yeah, but it's also the speed of engagement that these yeah, muscles so that's contract. Yeah, yeah, so the speed of engagement. So that's power, right? <laughs> does, does that make sense? To add to that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's yeah, the speed of it. So you're still that. training power output and this is precisely the point. And that's precisely, actually that says... That's what defends my point about the core stability even better. It's like you're still training for power output and things like that, even when you're thinking about the subtlety of certain muscles, because you want them to fire at the right time in the right way with enough force that it's now going to stabilize all the bones in your foot. But I think if we take it all the way down and strip it, sometimes it's just there. There, And I'm sure, Keith, you understand that when it comes to rehab, there are some times where it's just, okay, not the power output, but we're just looking at engagement. Well, I think it's on. I think you're both on the same point, but you're just looking at it from, from different ends of the spectrum. Like it's training the nervous system to mm. activate the tissue in the right combination and in the right order to, to react to a a wobble left or a wobble right say and then to activate the right muscle so that neural pathway needs to be active and in tune and fired up and then that it's sort of like it's it's on the power in the sense where it might be for an arbitrary number it might be five or ten watts of power compared to the single leg explosive jump that's mm. 110 watts or whatever so i think you both have the same you're on the same page um so a strategy at the lower end to increase your nervous system's uh, input and output can be like an unstable surface. But very quickly, that becomes time ineff inefficient. Yeah. yeah but what I'm saying is the engagement is the power. But the, the reason why I, I pick up on that point is because when people use the words force and power, they think the big jump. They think like the big sort of heavy squat. And so then they say, well, I don't want to do force training and power training. I just want to do the the engagement stuff. You know? But it's it's that fragmentation that leads to the whole philosophy of well i'll then just go on a bosu ball because i just want to train the engagement but it's yeah. it's the exact same thing yeah that's a, valid, on a separate continuum. point um yeah i can't remember what the original what was the original question well we were talking about myths like things that you guys have been able to see in the fitness industry but because of your background and your knowledge of anatomy and your knowledge of physiology mm. you've been able to say okay well that's not quite right 
So anatomy myths, that's the topic. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think uh, that's a very interesting conversation, to be fair. I've, 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 we've, we've done well, I think. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, like, Matt, up until that point where you said people fragmented, like, you're right. Like, in my mind as well, it's very fragmented. And now that, like, you've presented that point, I can understand mm. that, yeah, if I don't fragment it, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, and I won't get into this too much because it's pretty much my series of lectures, but it's Ooh. that interconnectedness of everything, of the mm-hmm. muscles, of the the rest of the body and the environment that it's in and all the rest of it. It's If people had that understanding, training and things like that would become a lot simpler. And certainly the explanation of why certain things happen would be a lot simpler. And that, that goes for pretty much all of life, things that you experience. Yeah, I think like to round it up, anatomy is, is just such a fascinating subject and topic and we could yeah. talk about this for ages because it's so the human body is so complex yeah. and intricate and amazing and wonderful and very complicated yeah. and you can't it's hard to even get near understanding those if you don't understand the scaffolding like if you don't understand what you're made of um you can't understand the full potential of what of what it can achieve now do you guys have anything to add before you go Nope. Oh, I just think if, if, you're, if you're doing the course, good luck with it. Um, it's a lot to take in, so just be patient with it and don't be overwhelmed by it and just get a grasp in the language and the, the skeleton and then uh, everything else gets a little bit easier if you follow the structure that we go through in the talks. Well, thank you so much, guys, for taking part today and that great discussion. Pleasure. Yeah. Bye. 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 Bye.